from this episode. How do pilots flying for a French airline operate safely in South Korea? How does a piece of luggage tagged in Los Angeles seamlessly transfer planes in London and then again in Nairobi, Kenya? How do we make sure that with different languages, laws, and practices all around the world, we have a global air travel system that remains extremely interconnected and well-functioning? I've often thought that the world of air travel is a bit of a miracle in the sense that there is so much that has to come together to work properly, and the answers to these questions demonstrate exactly that. This is Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. While flying can be stressful and frustrating, the world of commercial aviation is also incredibly intriguing. Flying Smarter delves into the miraculous and often misunderstood realm of air travel by sharing stories and experiences, looking at how things work in the air travel industry, and providing tips and advice for your next trip. Your host, Andrew, is here to answer your questions about flying and explore different aspects of the air travel experience to make you a better informed and better prepared traveler for your next flight. Welcome to episode 53 of Flying Smarter. My name is Andrew and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the passenger takeaways from two recent aviation incidents before covering how much airliners weigh. Then, for the main segment, I'm looking at how we've developed international aviation organizations that help make our global air travel industry work in a seamless, interconnected way. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I don't often cover current events or news on Flying Smarter, and that's in part to allow for the episodes to be as evergreen as possible. I'm going to make a bit of an exception to that practice today though since there have been two incidents lately that have had some valuable safety lessons and reminders that have no expiry date anytime soon, so I want to talk about them briefly. Now the first is the runway collision that happened at Tokyo Haneda Airport on the evening of January 2nd, 2024. The incident occurred on runway 34 right, and coincidentally I had just been on a flight that took off from that exact runway two evenings prior to the incident. Now essentially what happened was a large wide-body Airbus A350-900 operated by Japan Airlines landed on the runway, colliding with another aircraft that was already sitting on the runway, a smaller turboprop plane belonging to the Japanese Coast Guard. While all 379 passengers and crew on the Japan Airlines aircraft survived the collision and subsequent fire, five of the six crew members on the Coast Guard aircraft tragically lost their lives. Now I'm not really here to talk about the causes of the collision and the investigations have yet to play out in full, but from a passenger perspective, I think there are some important lessons to be learned from what happened immediately after the collision. Using only three of the aircraft's eight evacuation slides, all 379 passengers and crew on the Japan Airlines flight successfully evacuated the aircraft. Some people called this a miracle, but I think a more accurate description is that this was an emergency evacuation that played out as it should have. It's not really encouraged to be filming during an emergency, but there are some videos taken by passengers when they weren't actively evacuating, like when they were sitting and waiting for flight attendant instructions, and then from when they had left and ran away from the aircraft, and these videos offer some interesting insights. Firstly, I think it highlights the important role that flight attendants play in the safety of passengers. We often only think and hear about them in the context of service, but at the end of the day, they are also responsible for passenger safety. And by all accounts, the crew of this flight did a fantastic job with the evacuation. 
There's no doubt that it's no easy task to give instructions, operate emergency equipment, and help passengers when your plane is on fire. Another key thing is that it appears that there weren't any passengers that brought along their bags during the evacuation, and this is something that often isn't stressed enough to passengers. It's natural for people to want to bring their belongings when they're leaving the aircraft, but doing so can cause fatal delays during an emergency. There have been sad incidents where people are evacuating an aircraft and some of them are carrying their suitcases, meaning that they took the time to go and retrieve them, and then subsequently, some of their fellow passengers died because they didn't make it out on time. On the Japan Airlines flight, the safety video actually had a scene showing a chaotic aircraft during an emergency and reminding passengers to leave their bags, and it looks like passengers followed this direction very well. Now, the first week of 2024 wasn't great for aviation safety, and the second incident I want to talk about happened a few days later, and that's the Alaska Airlines Boeing 737-9 MAX door plug incident. Shortly after departing Portland International Airport on the evening of January 5th, a door plug blew off the aircraft, causing a rapid decompression. The door plug was essentially a panel that was in the space of an optional emergency exit door that is used when the aircraft has a higher density configuration, but the exit was not required on the Alaska Airlines plane. What a decompression looks like in practice is that the aircraft becomes very windy due to the pressure difference between the inside of the cabin and the sky outside, which allows air to flow outside the cabin powerfully enough to suck things out of the plane. While the aircraft was able to safely land with only a few minor injuries, the incident also leaves us with some important lessons. Again, I won't get into the cause of what happened, but rather highlight some things that we can take away from it as travelers. The first is to keep your seatbelt fastened whenever possible. A Seattle Times article reported that someone's shirt and a seat headrest had flown out of the aircraft during the decompression, and it's not impossible for someone to die after being sucked out of an aircraft while in flight. And yes, it's unfortunately happened before. This was also one of those incidents that is described in the safety demonstrations as a loss in cabin pressure, meaning that the oxygen masks dropped down. We don't really want to be in a position to be trying to figure out the masks or any other piece of emergency equipment after they've appeared in front of us, as those seconds can be quite valuable. So it's important to know what you're doing, and that comes from paying attention to the safety demonstration and the safety card. Following these two incidents, there have been anecdotal reports from flight attendants saying that more people are paying attention to the safety demonstration, which is a good thing to hear. With all this being said, keep in mind that air travel is still exceptionally safe. You're still much more likely to get into an accident on your way to and from the airport than you are during your flight. And as shown in both of these incidents, there are systems and equipment in place to help keep us safe in the case of an emergency. What I think is important to take away from these cases is that safety is a shared responsibility and that passengers have a role to play in learning the safety information that is taught to them and then applying it to the best of their ability in the unfortunate case that they need to use it. Now thanks for sticking with me through all that, it's a bit different from what I usually talk about but I thought it's worth discussing briefly since it's directly relevant to how we can be better travelers. For more on cabin safety, you can always check out episode 15, where I spoke with flight attendant Janelle about the topic. Now, let's get into today's episode. How much do airliners weigh? Well, this depends on a few things, primarily how big the aircraft is and how much stuff is loaded on it. Let's take a look at a very common narrowbody aircraft, the Boeing 737, and specifically the Boeing 737-800. 
These single-aisle jets seat around 150 to 200 passengers, depending on the airline, and fly all around the world. The Airbus competitor, the Airbus A320, is similar in size and weight. Now, an empty Boeing 737-800 weighs around 91,300 pounds, or around 41,500 kilograms. Its maximum weight for takeoff is around 174,000 pounds, or 79,000 kilograms. Now, unless you're familiar with heavy weights, these figures probably don't mean all that much and just seem like big numbers. So let me try to put it into context. An adult elephant weighs somewhere in the range of 11,000 pounds. So an empty Boeing 737 is around eight times the weight of an elephant. The average house is estimated to be in the range of about 160,000 pounds without the foundation or its contents. So your Boeing 737 would likely be somewhere around that weight when it's loaded. It's amazing to think that something that weighs as much as your house can fly. But the Boeing 737 isn't even that big of an aircraft. Let's look at a popular wide-body aircraft, the Airbus A350, which weighs around 314,000 pounds or 142,000 kilograms. When fully loaded with fuel, passengers, and cargo, it can weigh around twice that. That's around 55 times the weight of an elephant, and close to the weight of a US Navy Cyclone-class patrol vessel, which is one of the smaller ships in the Navy's fleet. It gets even bigger though. Back to the Airbus A380, those things weigh a whopping 628,000 pounds, or 285,000 kilograms when empty, and 1.27 million pounds, or 575,000 kilograms when fully loaded. That's about four and a half times heavier than the Statue of Liberty, excluding the base. Weight planning can be a complicated science, and it's something that happens before each and every flight, whether it's a training flight in a two-seater propeller plane or a large commercial airliner. The pilots, or the load planners or dispatchers or whoever is looking at the weight imbalance of an aircraft, have to perform calculations based on the specific aircraft, fuel, passenger count, and cargo loading and they start with the empty weight of the aircraft. They have to ensure that the aircraft is within a certain weight range and a certain range for center of gravity, both when it takes off and when it lands, the difference being the fuel that is burned in the air. Did you know that there is a public road that intersects the runway at Gibraltar International Airport? It's not uncommon to see underpasses for vehicles at airports when they have to intersect the paths of aircraft. But if you go to the airport at the British Overseas Territory of Gibraltar, you'll find that one of the main roads in the territory goes straight across the runway. Winston Churchill Avenue, which happens to be the main road heading toward the land border with Spain, intersects the runway and it's all on the same level. What this means is that the road is usually open, with vehicles and passengers allowed to cross the runway. When an aircraft has to take off or land, which currently only happens a handful of times per day, the road is closed off with lights and physical barriers. So if you're ever in Gibraltar, you now know that you have the rare opportunity to walk or drive on an airport runway. As much as we live in an interconnected globalized world, standards, rules, and practices for many aspects of life vary between different jurisdictions. Depending on where you are in the world, people drive on different sides of the road, they use different plugs for their appliances, and they use different systems of measurement. With all the different government jurisdictions and the different airports and airlines in the world, how does everything work together? How do pilots flying for a French airline operate safely in South Korea? 
How does a piece of luggage tagged in Los Angeles seamlessly transfer planes in London and then again in Nairobi, Kenya? How do we make sure that with different languages, laws, and practices all around the world, we have a global air travel system that remains extremely interconnected and well-functioning? I've often thought that the world of air travel is a bit of a miracle in the sense that there is so much that has to come together to work properly, and the answers to these questions demonstrate exactly that. We as humans have developed systems and institutions to coordinate and regulate the global aviation industry to ensure that we as travelers, and the cargo that we move, can fly around the world safely and efficiently. In today's main segment, I want to talk about the key international aviation organizations that exist to achieve these important goals. Let's start with what can be considered the heart of our interconnected network of global air travel the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO. Established in the aftermath of World War II, the ICAO plays a pivotal role in shaping the landscape of international air travel, ensuring its safety, security, and sustainability. Now, the origins of the ICAO can be traced back to the historic Convention on International Civil Aviation of 1944, also known as the Chicago Convention. This was a landmark event that laid the foundation for modern international civil aviation, Representatives from 52 nations gathered in Chicago to establish a framework for the development and the standardization of international aviation practices. These included many of the fundamental principles of the world of air travel today, ranging from an agreement that no air service can be operated over or into a country without that country's permission, to a requirement that pilots engaged in international aviation need to be properly licensed. Now, in addition to codifying basic principles for international civil aviation, the convention also created the ICAO, a specialized United Nations agency. The ICAO officially came into existence on April 4, 1947, with its headquarters located in Montreal, Canada. The aftermath of World War II emphasized the need for a global regulatory body to ensure the safety and efficiency of international air travel. The ICAO was tasked with formulating and implementing international standards and regulations that would govern the budding aviation industry. Its primary objective is to ensure standardization of operations around the world and to foster cooperation among nations, to promote and ensure the safe and orderly operation of civil aviation worldwide. One of the ICAO's key functions is to develop policies and standards for global civil aviation. And when I say civil aviation, we're excluding military aviation here, in case you are wondering about the distinction. The ICAO develops what are known as standards and recommended practices, which are comprehensive guidelines and regulations designed to establish a universal framework that its member states are expected to adopt to govern their civil aviation activities consistently. The standards and recommended practices are embedded in the annexes of the Chicago Convention and are revised and updated on a regular basis. Perhaps the most important standards and recommended practices are the set of aviation safety standards aimed at minimizing the risk of accidents and incidents. Covering a wide spectrum of areas, from aircraft design and maintenance to air traffic management and airport operations, these standards are continuously revised to reflect the latest advancements in technology, best industry practices, and lessons learned from incidents and accidents. For example, Annex 2 of the Chicago Convention is titled Rules of the Air, and it includes things like collision avoidance and distress signals. It specifies that if two aircraft are coming at each other head-on, each one should turn to the right to avoid a collision. It also specifies different cruising altitudes for eastbound and westbound aircraft, also with the goal of avoiding collisions. 
Meanwhile, if you look at Annex 14, you'll find hundreds of pages of standards for airports, ranging from firefighting to lighting to ground markings. There are also a bunch of standards and recommended practices related to aviation security, with the objective of preventing unlawful interference with our air travel system. These standards encompass a wide range of measures, including airport security, screening procedures, and the handling of potentially dangerous goods. These are mostly contained in Annexes 17 and 18 and include things like ensuring that airport security screeners are certified according to consistent standards and requiring countries to ensure that their airlines take measures to prevent unauthorized individuals from entering the flight deck. Recognizing the environmental impact of aviation, the ICAO also has standards and recommended practices aimed at promoting sustainable aviation practices. These environmental standards are in Annex 16 of the Chicago Convention and address issues such as aircraft emissions, noise pollution, and fuel efficiency. And then you've got Annex 9, which is entitled Facilitation. And this is a set of standards that is particularly important to us as travelers. For example, it includes a standard that says that countries shall not require visitors traveling by air to present any other form of identification other than their passport, which prevents countries from routinely demanding multiple pieces of ID from travelers. There is also a standard that says that all passports should be machine-readable, except for emergency travel documents. Now there's a difference between standards and recommended practices. Countries are expected to follow standards, but recommended practices are more like suggestions, just as the name implies. Here's an example. In the facilitation annex, there's a standard that says that governments shall make arrangement for enough border control channels to clear passengers and crew without delay and that additional channels should be available for complicated cases so that they don't delay the main flow of passengers. In practice, this is to prevent undue holdups at customs and immigration facilities and airports around the world. The way it's written, the wording used is quote-unquote shall, and it's a standard. Immediately after this provision is a recommended practice, where it says that countries should ensure that airports provide adequate space in the baggage claim area to permit easy baggage identification and efficient pickup by passengers. Although the standards and best practices are a critical part of the ICAO's work and a critical factor in keeping our global air travel system working, the UN body does a lot of other things as well. ICAO bureaucrats conduct analysis and studies, creating products such as their annual safety report, which includes accident statistics and analysis for the previous year. Furthermore, it's no secret that air connectivity is a catalyst for economic development, and the ICAO works to facilitate international cooperation, provide regulatory guidance, and policy support. It also has data and research available for decision makers and researchers. While its headquarters are in Montreal, the ICAO has established regional offices worldwide, each playing a vital role in coordinating regional initiatives, addressing specific challenges, and providing technical assistance to member states. These regional offices essentially act as intermediaries, bridging the gap between the global standards set by ICAO and the unique circumstances and needs of individual regions. While the ICAO is a UN body that facilitates cooperation between countries, the International Air Transport Association, or IATA, is an industry association that facilitates cooperation between airlines. Established in 1945, IATA serves as a unifying entity for airlines worldwide, fostering collaboration, setting standards, and addressing challenges that are unique to the aviation sector. It currently has about 317 member airlines, representing around 82% of all international passenger traffic. 
IATA officially came into existence in April of 1945, and like the ICAO, its headquarters were established in Montreal, Canada. The association's mission is to, quote, represent, lead, and serve the airline industry, end quote. One of IATA's primary roles is to provide a platform for collaboration and representation for its member airlines. As an industry group, IATA acts as a unified voice advocating for the interests of the industry. The association engages in dialogue with governments, regulatory bodies, and other stakeholders to shape policies and regulations that impact the airline sector. Like the ICAO, IATA is also involved in aviation safety and security. The IATA Operational Safety Audit is a cornerstone of the association's commitment to safety. Airlines voluntarily undergo rigorous audits to assess their operational management and control systems, ensuring compliance with globally recognized safety standards. The certification not only enhances safety, but also serves as a mark of excellence and credibility for airlines. In the realm of security, IATA collaborates with governments and regulatory bodies to establish measures that safeguard the aviation industry against potential threats. While the ICAO's work focuses on governments and regulatory bodies, IATA's membership consists of airlines. Their standards and guidance therefore are geared at airlines, and this means that some of the things that we often take for granted are the result of work undertaken by IATA. IATA is instrumental in developing and maintaining global standards that govern various aspects of air travel. From ticketing and baggage handling, to safety and security protocols, the association's efforts contribute to a cohesive and standardized experience for all of us as passengers. Pretty much wherever you fly in the world, baggage tags have the same general format, with the most important thing on the tag being the barcode. These 10-digit codes are standardized throughout the industry. The first digit is the type of bag, and the next three digits are a unique code that IATA has assigned to your airline, and the last six digits identify your specific bag. You'll also see three-letter airport codes on the tag for your destination airport and each airport that you're connecting through. These codes are assigned and managed by IATA, although ICAO also has a different set of airport codes, and I discussed this more thoroughly in episode 33, Decoding Airport Codes. While the ICAO has standards and recommended practices, IATA has something similar, called resolutions and recommended practices, with resolutions being the ones that are mandatory for member airlines. Back on the topic of baggage handling, IATA has resolutions covering things like found and unclaimed luggage, baggage tracking, and the acceptance of battery-powered wheelchairs and mobility aids. With the introduction of RFID and digital bag tags in recent years, IATA is also working to standardize these across the industry as well. Another area that has a big impact on passengers is IATA's role in coordinating airport slots. At certain busy airports, slots are used to control capacity. In this context, a slot is essentially permission for an airline to use the airport infrastructure at a given date and time. Now this isn't the same thing as an air traffic control slot which is specifically for taking off and landing, but the idea is similar in the sense that it's used to control capacity for a given facility, in this case the airport infrastructure, including the runway, but also for things like gates and the terminals. The global slot coordination process is centered around the World Airport Slot Guidelines, which is jointly published by IATA and two other industry associations. IATA even holds two annual slot conferences, bringing airlines and airports together to discuss upcoming plans. Slot coordination can be complicated, and airlines are extremely invested in the process, as it dictates whether or not and how frequently they can operate to certain high-demand airports. Most famously, perhaps, slots at London Heathrow are bought and sold between airlines for tens of millions of dollars. 
While the ICAO and IATA are perhaps the most well-known international civil aviation bodies, there are others as well. Another one of the authors of the World Airport Slot Guidelines is Airport Council International, or ACI. If IATA is the Industry Association for Airlines, Airport Council International is the one for airports. Like IATA does for airlines, ACI advocates for airports with the ICAO and worldwide governments, while also providing airport-related programs and training. ACI's membership currently sits at a little over 700, covering nearly 2,000 airports in 171 countries. The organization's work covers everything from technical input on airport safety standards through its observer status at the ICAO, to providing a resource guide for airports to address the mental health of their workers. Along the same lines, there are global industry and labor groups representing the air navigation services industry, which includes air traffic control and other public flight planning services, the business aviation community, pilots, and transportation workers more broadly. While the role and impact of these organizations can vary, they all play a vital role in shaping the industry that we know today for passengers and workers alike. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Be sure to follow or subscribe to Flying Smarter wherever you get your podcasts so that you get future episodes right when they're released. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.